Well, this morning I'd like to focus on our first reading. And it's a selection from the Old Testament book of Ezra. And this takes place sometime in the in the 5th century before Christ's birth. And it's the aftermath of the Israelites or the or the, the Jews exile into Babylon. So around uh 580 or so around that time period actually it happened. It was a, there was a few uh, successive attacks and deportations. The Babylonians uh, assailed Jerusalem and uh, they took the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem away, scattered them to different places, primarily to Babylon. And that was a that was that's probably, I mean, really in, in the historical memory of Israel, it's the most important event that happened to them. In a lot of ways, it's kind of more important than even the exodus from Egypt because the exodus from Egypt, I think, is maybe a little bit more of like almost kind of a... It's a backdrop to which everything else is sort of compared. I mean, it's kind of a given assumption in the Old Testament, but the, the main historical event that happened was that deportation to Babylon. It, it really destabilized all of Israel. It made them question whether God's promises were ever going to be fulfilled. I mean, is this ever going to, you know, God promised Israel to be the head of the nations and the coming of the Messiah, a Davidic king who would be the supreme ruler, you know, almost like a paradise would be ushered in when the coming of, when the Messiah comes. I mean, this is how they're thinking. And then the whole nation is destroyed. The sovereignty is taken away. The kingship is taken away. And they're nobodies and they're nothings. Uh, they're just immigrants in this foreign country in Babylon. So I love our psalm today. It says when they when they came back to the Holy Land, they were like men dreaming. You know, so it was, this, it was like the fulfillment of a dream. But what's interesting is you see this all the hopes of Israel uh, being fulfilled and coming about through the instrumentality of someone who was not an Israelite, King Cyrus of Persia. So after the Babylonians were in power. In, in terms of like, uh, who were, who was ruling the Near East is what the question was. Who was the, who was the big dog, the emperor? It was the Babylonians, but then the Persians came into power and it was really Cyrus. Cyrus is a very important, um, historical figure mentioned a lot in, in the Old Testament. But he's not an Israelite. Is that interesting? So God's will was being performed. It even says it's a fulfillment of Jeremiah's prophecy. Jeremiah, at the time of the deportation of the Jews to Babylon, prophesied that they would be in exile for 70 years. And so this is God's word that the Jews are going to be in exile for 70 years, and then they're going to be restored. Who's going to restore them? So to fulfill that prophecy, to fulfill the word of God, God uses a non, a member of, of the non-chosen race, of a non-chosen race, the Persians. It's very interesting. And I think in our own lives, I think we can see, um, if we think about it, we can see how God has used uh, non-believers, people who are completely indifferent towards religion, um, to speak to us and to fulfill his will for each one of us in our lives. I know in my own life, probably one of the most significant and I, I I keep looking back on it as really a watershed moment for me personally and it, it becomes more important the older I get you know the more I look back on it and kind of see things from a bird bird's eye point of view 
It was uh, my transition from my undergraduate uh, department to my graduate department. It was in the same university, but these two departments were at loggerheads with each other. They were they had very contrary philosophies. Well, I was going from the English department to the philosophy department, and so I got a degree in English literature education, and then I went to do a master's in um, in philosophy. And uh, I had imbibed certain bad habits that were of an intellectual nature, but they were really also of a, of a moral and character nature as well. And uh, it was basically kind of like a suspicion that when you, when you evaluate a piece of literature, you're always looking uh, to interpret its true meaning outside the intention of the author. So, you know, oh, I know Shakespeare wrote this play, but really this is just a function of Shakespeare's, you know, uh, economic interests. You know, there's a kind of like a, you'd put a Marxist reading on the text. Now, of course, I wasn't a Marxist, but, but indirectly what I had imbibed was this kind of a, a, uh, an interpretive method of suspicion. And when I came into the philosophy department, my, some of my professors were pointing this out to me. And this one one particular professor, who uh, I took ethics with her, she was an agnostic herself. She, you know, she's not a religious person at all. She's basically an agnostic. But she says, you know, there's this thing. It's called putting a charitable interpretation on a text, so that if you are reading an author and you can't make sense of him or her, you, you try your best and you assume that they're trying to say something intelligent and you don't, and you try to seek out what that could be. You don't just assume that they're wrong or they're stupid or that there's some other ulterior motive or some, some kind of subconscious motive going on with them. But the whole point to have an intellectual discourse is to try to find what they're really saying and assume. You have to assume that what they're saying makes sense. And uh, they could be right or wrong, but that they're, they're actually making sense. And you gotta, you got to look that out. That's called what's putting a charitable interpretation on, on them. And uh, that was a real turning point for me. The other thing, too, is I, I remember taking a class from another professor. And it was the first time in my life that, you know, sometimes teachers are too nice to students. Really, they're too nice, especially today. You get really inflated grades, and students are teachers are afraid to rank kids, and you know everybody wins, everybody gets prizes. It's not, it's really not good because it, it sets kids up for failure later on in life when they get into reality and they figure out, oh, the world doesn't work like that. I mean, there's there's real real things at stake. This one professor, I wrote a paper, and it was I was probably writing things kind of in, in towards my in terms of my old bad uh, sort of assumptions and standards for my undergraduate degree. And when I came to pick it up from him after he graded it, he it was one on one. He didn't do it in front of others. He tore into me like I have never been insulted or attacked ever in my life. He, it was from top to bottom. He was just he just completely teared me apart. And uh, I remember walking out of there, and I had the paper, and I couldn't even say anything to him. I, I had the paper in a Manila envelope. I didn't want to look at it, you know, like to see his critiques and his corrections. I didn't want to look at it. And I set it down on my shelf, and I think I don't think I've looked at it to this day. <laughs> this is 20 years ago. Um, but you know, actually, he, he really humbled me because he was right. What he was saying was right, actually, and. Uh, he really humbled me, and I started to then apply that kind of academic method of being charitable in my interpersonal relationships. So someone would say something, I would always assume, well, maybe what they meant was this, and I, 
well, you know, I just try to give them an excuse if they're in a bad, a bad day or who knows what's going on. They're, they're dealing with something in their own personal life. And I just found myself becoming charitable in my interpersonal relations at an ethical and a moral level. And then later on, as I got deeper into my faith, I started to see this is the teaching of the saints. You don't, don't be suspicious about people. And I see how so often people set themselves up for failure in life and division happens because someone does something or says something and the other person interprets it in the worst possible light instead of interpreting it in the best possible light. And it's like it causes trouble for this person, but it mostly causes trouble for the person who's doing the interpreting. They get all these ideas in their head and they become suspicious, they become preoccupied. Uh, with what this person said or what this person did. They become offended. And they're not able to forgive and let go. And oftentimes, it's all in their head that it was just a really suspicious, rash judgment that they exercised towards this other person. And it's a real hang-up. It stops them from moving on in their own relationships, in their work life, professional life, and all these things. In any event, I just, I'm amazed though that I think some of the, the most, uh, instrumental and helpful corrections I've received in life came from non-believers. And that was God working through a total, a vessel that was completely outside the pale of, you know, what, what you would consider His people and, and, and Christians. Uh, and, and it's just amazing that God can work that way. So, my brothers and sisters, let's, let's thank God for that. Think of in our own lives. I'm sure that's happened to each one of us if we can think about it, uh, where we've benefited uh, and we've grown and God's will for us has been accomplished through people outside, outsiders, so to speak. Um, this, is, this is God's wisdom and it's another way that he shows his love for each one of us.